Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Nothing gets an online radio show going more than a few statistics right off the bat. So thanks to the score.ie for pointing us in the direction of these numbers. The best forward, don't look so excited about this, Murph. The best Sorry, forward in Europe. I'm just trying not to drop off here. Let's go on. <laughs> After 10 seconds of our program, I've already lost everybody's interest. The best no, forward on, in give Europe us the numbers. On the opening weekend of Heineken Cup, according to the Optus stats, Leinster hooker Sean Cronin. 11 tackles out of 11. 16 successful line out throws out of 17. 55 metres. 17 line out throws. Yeah, that seems like an awful lot of line We'll go with that for the time being. That's one every... Two, two games? What, nearly one every four minutes. No, it's just, no, it's just one game. game. Yeah. yeah, first game. Oh, right. 55 metres gained in just six carries and an assist for Sean Brown's try. It's all coming up, Crown and giving him a total, Murph, of 462 Opta Index points. Oh, Don't know how to calculate 462 that. 462 near so, so perilously close to the golden... 500 number the so av- beloved of all rugby players yeah. I'm sure the average- score of 500 <laughs> boss as they come into the dressing room after every game I can, I can see it now the average for his position 212 uh, not so bad. he's more than twice as good as the average the hooker average in hooker. Europe at the weekend Sean Cronin he's, more than twice, <laughs> twice he's as good better as than average. your average hooker yeah he's Sean Cronin will I go through the entire 15 players who made the team of the week maybe later maybe later U.S. Murph should be... Um, well, actually, before we get to U.S. Murph, we're going to talk to Sean Cronin on the show. That's well, why I'm bringing up these sparkling stats. That, and yeah. Shane Horgan on the wisdom or otherwise of coaches criticising their players in public. Rob Penny, uh, we know, did this after the defeat to Edinburgh. And also, Conor O'Shea. I don't, I'm trying to work out who... Uh, I'll bring up some of the exact quotes later on. I'm trying to work out who was um, more harsh. Was it O'Shea or was it Penny? Uh, but, you know, the, the common wisdom is that you'd never do this. Never do this. Never criticise your players. don't know if that's entirely true. We'll talk to Shane about his own experiences and whether maybe sometimes it's not the worst idea in the world. Yeah, you're kind of thinking if you, criti- if you keep criticising players... Oh, yeah, if you do it every week in public, you, yeah. well, you won't be in a job, really. Yeah, but uh, precisely. Once in a while, maybe? Yeah, I, I think that there's, there is probably uh, a place for it. Um, because, precisely because... They don't expect, I mean, if you walk into a dressing room, you expect criticism, you expect constructive criticism, sometimes you expect your manager to lose the plot with you. I mean, it's all part of being a being a professional player, all part of being an amateur player. But 
if a manager does come out and criticise you publicly, you say, right, well, something happened this week that was patently beyond the pale. We're also talking about, yeah, we're talking about criticism of the team, not coming out specifically. You know, Matt O'Connor O'Connor didn't come out after the game and say, listen, Kevin McLaughlin only got 412 points in the Optus stats. Yeah. As a disgrace. That's just not good enough, Kevin. Well, I think that's fair enough. I mean, if the team can't stand up to a bit of jawboning from the coach, how are they supposed to be able to go out there and do battle against uh, 15 other sort of uh, whatever the warriors cliche Ted, word you warriors, go for warriors there whatever, like whatever you yeah. want to call them yeah i mean if, whereas if you single out a couple of guys then that's maybe when you start having problems because obviously they could well and probably do feel as though it wasn't their fault or at least what about that other guy pointing yeah. the finger at well why you know how can i get criticized but what about him maybe that's when the problems start but you know occasionally if, if a team does something disgraceful then what's the coach supposed to say you know give them all a sugar lump that would be a strange thing to do, all right. Mm. That would be odd. Treating I mean, like I, but then again, baby. if you're looking for a reaction, then you know they part, that it would be something that they would discuss. You know, why is he giving us a sugar lump? What's he trying to? Is he calling me a horse? Is, is this is the Roy? Ha- is this the Roy Hodgson school of management <laughs> yeah. telling terrible jokes at halftime? Maybe Let's who knows? I, I don't really know. More on that, I'm sure, in football a little bit later on today. But US Murph should be in good form. Lots of great stuff happening in the baseball, for one thing. And Tom Brady confirmed his genius once again last Sunday night. His Patriots were trading the New Orleans Saints. A lot of the home fans had actually left the stadium because it didn't look as though they were going to have time to get the ball back. They did get it back. Brady marched them up the field. And then this. Brady's in the gun. Bolt into his left. He's got the who man on the right wing with Dobson to the right. Collie and Tompkins left. Brady throws it to the end zone for Kenbrell. Tompkins leaping. He's got it. Touchdown. Kenbrell Tompkins. Brady's back. That's your quarterback. Pull off the building. Unicorns. Show ponies. Where's the beef? Unicorns. Show ponies. Where's the beef? So yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is I, do, take do, some, I know you're looking at me, Ken. I I can't under I can't explain it to you. <laughs> this is going to take some I can't understand it, but on. it it was quite a dramatic moment. There's oh no yeah, doubt about it. I am concerned though that that guy's voice was he he may never recover. The 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 not the play by play guy, the yeah, color guy Bob, there. Bob Sochi or Saki and Scott Zolak were the commentators there for CB, CBS the, Boston. Uh, he's the color guy, the guy talking about show ponies and where's the beef? Um, apparently, he is a radio show on. Monday morning, you know, every weekday morning. That was on Sunday night. <laughs> I would say Monday morning's show would have been interesting, to say the least. We're joined now by Sean Cronin, ahead of Saturday's Heineken Cup game against Cast. A great win against Ospreys last week, Sean, so well done on that. Not such a good day out against Munster previous to that in the Rabo. Now, the players, I know Matt O'Connor said you guys held your hands up afterwards about the performance. I'm just wondering, though, new players in the team early in the season, you lose a match like that and you compete pretty badly against Munster. Did that put any doubts in your head? Were you, as a team, were you thinking, well, you know, maybe we're not as good as we have been in previous seasons? Um, I wouldn't say that. The, mind, the mindset was like that, but, um, you know, we, we we expected to go down to Munster and, and, and put in a good performance at the very least. And uh, we didn't do that. Um, you know, they were far superior on the night. They wanted it more. They were hungrier. And uh, we just didn't really front up our show on the night. So, um, looking into the week of the Ospreys, we knew that we'd have to, we'd have to get ourselves together, regroup, which was going to be another massive game. And uh, you know, it's always great whenever you put in a bad performance like that. You know, it always refocuses the mind. And um, I think that everybody did that, and uh, we managed to get a, 
a great win on the Ospreys at the weekend. Yeah, and it is early on in the season, as I mentioned. There are new faces in the team. Is it kind of important? I guess team sport largely is about players trusting each other and knowing that you can count on the other guys in the team. Does it help in that sense that you get a big win away to a team like Ospreys and, and you're looking around and thinking, you know, the, the team is actually pretty good still? Yeah, well, it was it, it was a, a huge win in the, con- the context that it was our first... Uh, it was the first Heineken Cup game. We had come off a bad loss to, to Munster the previous week. And, you know, in this so-called group of death, you know, we know that every game is going to, it's a huge opportunity and it's a, it's a must win really in what's going to be a hugely competitive group. So, um, you know, we had the, the Lions contingent coming back in for their second game back really. They all, you know, they really stepped up. Some of them were absolutely, absolutely superb. And when a team is clicking like that, it's a, it's a pleasure to, 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 to be in. But, we're under no illusions that this week, looking forward against you know the top fourteen French champions um, in cast, it's going to be another huge challenge. And like I said, there's re- there's really no uh, regular room for for any bad performances in this group. Sean, we had heard that you were flying and training coming into the game last week, and you had a brilliant game and you set up Sean O'Brien's try and got around the park quite a lot. Traditionally, this wasn't the role of a hooker, but I guess in recent years, players have to be able to do that, and it seems like a part of the game you enjoy greatly. Yeah, well, the kind of mold was was broken, I suppose, a good few years back when uh, Key Wood was, you know, the kind of player that I looked up to and, uh, you know, the kind of dynamism and, and everything else that he brought to his game. So, I presume uh, it is, it's a, an enjoyable part of the game is to get your hands on the ball and try and interlink to it with, with the back row like we did on the weekend for, for Shawnee's try and, and uh, try and interlink with your backs as much as, as, as much as you can. But, at the other end of the spectrum is making sure that you get your set piece right because uh, at the end of the day, that's ultimately what you'll be judged on, you know, your scrumming and, and your line-out. So that's, uh, they're, you know, two contrasting uh, aspects of, of, of a hooker's game, but they have to be they have to be spot on, really, you know. If you have a game where you haven't thrown well, the line-out hasn't gone well, but you've maybe scored a try and created a try, w- would you have a good feeling walking off the pitch? Um... Probably not, to be honest with you, because at the end of the day, uh, before you go onto the pitch, you really want to nail your bread and butter, which is your line out and your scrum. Um, because as you move up, as you move up in the in, in the level from let's say Rabo to Heineken to international, um, really having them nailed on is is the, the kind of key components that you're going to get judged on when it comes to selection for games. So um, it's it's vitally important to try and try, try and get both aspects right. Keith Wood, who you mentioned there, is a kind of a, an idol of yours, somebody you very much looked up to. He said himself that he would have had trouble with his throwing over the years. I mean, how much can, how much more can a hooker do to improve? I guess all, all you can really do is, is practice, practice, practice. Yeah, um, that's that's the nuts and bolts. Really, uh, um, we all we come in during the week. Me and and you had Rickard and Aaron Dundon. Uh, we all try and. It's actually very, it's very good in Leinster because we all try and say to each other, "Oh, look, you're, you could be, you could be doing this wrong, or you could be doing this wrong." And we're all, we're all kind of all on the same wavelength there, so it's kind of hugely beneficial that uh, we're able to talk to each other like that, and we're able to kind of communicate that, you know, the, we might see something, something wrong with the other guy, which is hugely helpful because it's, 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 it's no better person to have it coming from the, than the guy that who's playing the same position. So I think that's greatly helped, and the fact that, like you said, it. 
there's nothing better than practice, practice, practice when it comes to the crunch uh, in, in the games. Yeah, it's funny, you often hear about out-halves doing that. Obviously, they've always got kicking practice on top of the usual facets of the game. It sounds quite similar with you guys, really. You've got your own kind of club there and you have to you have to work on that together. Yeah, yeah. You see the, the kickers going off on, on a Wednesday and they're on their day off and, and doing their, their bits and pieces on the pitch. And it's kind of the same with we'd be inside in the, in the big gym complex that we have in UCD and um, we have a kind of like a, a little machine thing in there that we can get put someone up on top of and we just knock out a few reps there and for half an hour, 40 minutes and like I said, kind of critique each other you know, on, on how we're going and it's basically you know, getting in as much practice as you can um, because when it comes to the, to the game, you, know, you don't really have, the, you don't really have the, the luxury of having time on your, on your side. You just have to get on with it and hopefully that practice you've put in during the week... Um, you know, stands to you. You've clearly spent a lot of time with Rickard then. I guess it was a big shock to you when he had his health issue recently. Yeah, it was a massive shock because, uh, you know, he, he's he's a top lad. Ask anyone in the Irish game. He, he's he's one of the com- most committed and and, uh, and nicest guys you can meet. And uh, it was a massive shock to hear last week uh, that he's got to be, you know, out, out of the game for, for, for so long with what, what seemed like an extremely serious... Um, in, you know, so you could call it an injury at the time. Um, but everything seems to be that uh, he's going to make a full recovery, and that's the most important thing, you know, is his health. And um, you know, we all wish him the best, and hopefully he he can he can get back in the pitch as soon as he can because you know he's a top lad and a great player. Yeah, has he been in contact much with you and with the players, or is he, is he almost just taking an entire break from it? No, no, he's he's been in around. He's been in around UCD doing his his bits and pieces on the bike and. Uh, um, you know he's limited enough to what he can do, but now he's been in around and uh, you know he seems in good spirits because I think he's just happy to have you know found out what was wrong and, w- and what needs to be done and and uh, you know his it's all laid out in front of him now, so uh, I'm sure that um, you know he's happy that it's laid out like that and he knows that what the time frame is and I'm sure he'll be back f- fighting fit as soon as he can. Uh, Trevor Hogan told us on uh, Tuesday that uh, Marty Moore, who made such a huge impression in the Ospreys game, used to be known as the baby calf. Uh, you might let us know whether he's graduated to full cow or bullock status in the nickname front, uh, Sean. Well, I would have to definitely. Give, I'd say he's gone well past the cow now at this stage. We'd have to give him the full, the fully fledged um, prize bull uh, um, <laughs> status because uh, you know he's he's what you call a, a bull of a man, but. You know, he came on there the weekend and had an absolute, um, you know, crunch time of the game. And um, but you know, a lot of people were surprised about how well he done. But we, we, you know, we've been seeing him doing it, doing it, doing it in training and um, doing it in, in Rabo games as well. So we weren't surprised at all. And I was delighted for him when he came on. He just, you know, he settled in real quick and got down to business. And you know, I thought he had a fantastic game. Yeah, we've been talking about doing the basics and I guess you guys will have to get it right this weekend because cast are very good in the set piece and the weather doesn't look great at the moment. So you you might have to steal yourselves for a bit of attrition on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we kind of had the same situation a couple of seasons ago when we had Montpellier in our group and um, they sent an absolute uh, ginormous pack, uh, pack over um, in the home game here in the RDS. And I'm sure it has to be no different. They're absolutely massive men. Um, so I'm sure... We're definitely going to be into uh, for a uh, war of attrition, as they say, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be all hands on deck for that one. Yeah, we wish you well, Sean, and thanks very much for chatting to us today. Cheers. No problem.
And to that's the question that's going to be asked answer tonight. Tonight. So now come here tonight, tonight. Into Wexford Park and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just the bottom line is Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com Second Captains and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. Tonight, 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 tonight. Well, Murph, I must say, the just the Marty Moore story. I don't want to overshadow Sean Cronin gave us a lot of a lot there. Uh, very good talker, great guest to have on. But I'm just I'm obsessed now. Marty Moore has now graduated to a prize bull. Prize Start, bull. Only on Tuesday he was just a baby calf. I would have thought that there are intermediate stages here. You know, was there a stage early in 2013 when he was like the weanling heifer? I mean, you know, or, is, or does he just go straight from baby calf? You know, a difficult, a difficult animal to push to being a prize bull. Yeah. You know, I, I just think that there are intermediate stages there. I mean... To end, finally ending up as a spine and a bap. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe that's at the end of his career, and we hope that Marty has a long and fruitful career. But uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it strikes to the whole core of you know cow tipping. Have you guys have heard about cow tipping? Well, only only in Beavis and Butthead. Vaguely, I mean, you go around. Yeah, you don't actually. People don't actually tip cows over, do they? Well, I'd like to. It's been known. It's been known to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've never tipped. I myself personally, never, I've never even been in the presence of someone. Who's attempted to tip a cow? But it's, but it's something that you that do happens. hear about, you know. Yeah. A country. But hang on, is the point that the of cow tipping that the cow can't get back up? No, no, that's not it. No, of course the cow no, can cows get can up. get back up. I mean, it's not a beetle. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think ever happened to a cow in the in the wild? If it happened to fall over, that's it. Give game over. He's fallen <laughs> over. That's it. He's for the the, the crows to pay, to fight over. Let's let, 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 <laughs> design flaw <laughs> in this uh, massive uh, land animal. I, I don't know. I, I find it. I find it surprising that they're allegedly so easy to to push. Yeah, they're they're quite easy. Apparently, I mean, I I don't know. I don't. Know. I mean, it takes it takes a couple of drunk teenagers to do it, Ken, but they'll do it. Now Shane Horgan joins us to talk. Uh, well, I might just ask you about Sean Cronin first. Shane, before we get into the coach-manager chat, and uh, just a moment, I did ask him there, you know, if you score a try and assist another try, um, but your line-out doesn't go well, at the end of a game, do you feel good about yourself? And he did have to pause, because those tries, that, that try scoring sure feels good, but he said that, no, he couldn't be totally fulfilled with that, because he needs to get the nuts and bolts of his game right also. Now, the basics were very good last week, allied to the rest of his game, which is probably what sets him apart as a hooker. It does. I don't think there was too many better performances uh, right across the uh, Heineken Cup weekend than Sean Cronin's. I thought he was exceptional. And I think he's he's one of the, the players, I think, that will sort of benefit from not having um, Straussy breathing down his neck. You know, I think some players react well to having that level of competition. I think Sean Cronin will react better because he is now, you know, the, it's a long way down from, from, from Sean Cronin to the next Lancer hooker, to be honest with you. So, I, I think he he has that room to express himself. He doesn't have to be so worried um, about about you know losing the jersey if if he makes any mistake in the set piece. I think his scrum is generally really strong anyway. He's known as that. His lineup has been a bit on and off, but now I think you know hopefully with the with the extra level of confidence that he'll have of being uh, de- definitively Leinster's number one that he can rectify that. And if he does, then he's got just an incredible game. Um, 
I saw at the weekend his power has, he was a very powerful athlete coming from Connacht but I think because he hasn't maybe had as much game time as he if there was no you know Straussy there for example he's been in the gym a lot and he's worked on his power and you can see him he's huge like he looks as if he's like bursting out the jersey and you know, the greatest compliment I can give to him around the field is sometimes I mistake him for for Sean O'Brien. You know, he carries that well. So if he if he if he if he fixes entirely the scrum, uh, sorry, the the line out, you know, to the level that is at you know top top Heineken Cup level, then you know he could go anywhere and he could be such a valuable asset for um, for Ireland as well in in the autumn and the Six Nations. Shane, this is something we touched on the show on Tuesday, and that is the criticism from well, we talked quite a lot about Rob Penny, who said that the players lacked mental application. He says you got to love what you do, and today there was no love there. Now everyone's expecting a reaction to the defeat uh, uh, this Saturday, but Conor O'Shea also he said about the Harlequins' defeat. I'm angry. I thought we were terrible. We made so many basic errors. I'm furious. We can talk about injuries and various things like that, but when you have a bloke who dances along the touchline to score a try when it's easier to blow into touch, that shouldn't happen. Now, I mean, th- this is the kind of thing that I would imagine behind the scenes, uh, there's no doubt that Conor O'Shea would be saying that to his players, but it, it's, it's maybe surprising to us to hear coaches go public with this kind of thing. Yeah, I think as well, I think we have to go easy enough on coaches who say stuff like that as well, because we're always giving out about coaches not saying anything after games yeah. and you, you know, um, stonewalling the media, not giving us an insight into what their actual thought process is. Uh, so actually, when someone does come out with something, I find it really refreshing. It's really interesting. But that said, if you're a player and from a player's perspective, it can be tricky. For, for me, like the type of coaches who come out with those statements are, are normally of two main types. They're ones that are really comfortable in the position that they're in and they're in a very good team or they're ones that are panicking and they're a little bit worried about what's going on. And, you know, I've been in both uh, scenarios with, with, with Leinster over the years and, 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 well, to a lesser degree with Ireland. But certainly, our, I rem- you know, Joe Smith had came out on a number of occasions and, and criticised Leinster. Not really, maybe not in that strictly that strong of terms. Uh, Cheka, I think, on a couple of occasions did. And it was from a really strong position within the squad. And I think what um, Conor O'Shea did as well Although he came out quite damningly against you know the overall the team, he did specify some players and the Easter and Brown, I think Evans as well that played extremely well. So I think as he identified those players, you know, it, it's it, I think the position that he's in the in the change room is going like this is the way things should be done. This is the way we do things at Harlequins, and we slip below the level. Um, I think with, with Penny, I don't know if it was considered. Uh, with Connor, maybe considered with with Penny, maybe less so. I'd be a little bit worried that that, that type of criticism that uh, Penny came out with, in particular, um, it's quite a personal uh, crit- critique. Um, and it's you know, I, I prefer to get criticised about not being you know tactically um, astute enough or making basic errors than actually not being up for a game. I think that can lead to sometimes lead to trouble. But if if Penny's in a strong position in this within the squad. And there's no there's no question about uh, that. Then you know I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but it sounds like you're not sure on that. You said there's sort of two camps here. Is there a possibility that Penny is in the other camp, the one that that is panicking a little bit and isn't as strong as he could be within the setup? It's very difficult to know if you're not inside the camp. Um, what I what I do think though is that if you know it can be dangerous. It can be dangerous. And if players sense that you're trying to push the blame for performance entirely not that you're trying to put the blame for a performance on them but if you're trying to remove yourself from being part of uh, of the performance 
because everybody is. Every coach is part of the performance. Every player is part of the performance. If you if players get a sense that the the coach is trying to distance themselves from being part of that performance, saying, "Well, listen, I did my job, but they didn't do their job," then you know cracks can appear, and that can be dangerous. Now, I don't think that was necessarily the case with Penny, but. As long as as there's a strong core in the change room that are very much with them, and they say they are reinforcing that message, which I'm sure you know, I'm sure Paul O'Connell is, I'm sure um, uh, Peter O'Mahony is, I'm sure uh, Donica Ryan is. These guys are saying, listen, he's right here. It, sometimes it can be positive because I don't think it, it can be almost be embarrassing when your coach goes out to defend you when you know you've had a shocking game. I think. To pretend everything's rosy in the garden when things aren't going well, um, I don't think that's a, a huge benefit either. Um, I remember particularly, uh, you know, one occasion, Michael Checker, I think it was against Munster, then uh, Musgrave, and Michael Checker came into the change room and we performed really badly. And Michael Checker destroyed us. Like, I mean, like, there was, he was on the rampage for like five, ten minutes, as only a Czechs could, and it was entirely justified, entirely justified, and there was other players chipping in, and this was, this was entirely correct, um, and then he went out to the, to the media who were waiting outside the change room, and completely soft-soaped uh, it, you know, and said, you know, they were pretty happy with it. things didn't go right, bounce to the ball, but all the media were listening, and they could hear, hear through the window of the change room that he'd absolutely destroyed us, so I think you need to have some level of... Um, Honesty as well in the in the post match interview. Yeah, in terms of the, any positive effects of criticizing players in public, are there any? Or are, were there times when when Cheka actually, you know, when he didn't keep it private, when he did say things publicly, because it would be quite a rare thing that a coach does that. Does it cause a bit of a ripple amongst the squad? Is it something that the players would talk about? Yeah, again, I think it's it it depends the strength of the yeah. position of the coach coach and how. Uh, how respected he is, you know. On a couple of occasions, certainly with Czech, I know. I remember senior players having a chat afterwards and going, "You know, what can we expect? Is dead right. You know, this he's right. Like it was really poor. And we knew it was on us, and and to try and change it. And um, I think what there's a huge difference though between criticizing the overall performance of your own team and picking out individual players. And you know, criticizing them after the game, I think that's a really bad idea. I don't think that works very well. I don't. I think it's counterproductive as well. And you know, generally, coaches don't do it. And and I, I think if you if if coaches talk about you know the team in general and don't pick out specific players, it um, it's not much of an issue. I, I, you know, Connor's actually comments um, talking about the you know, the the player that should have been blown into touch going down the wing, Williams. I think it was. You know, that was quite directed at a couple of players as well. So, you know, for me, the issue is where do you go next week if you have a shocking game? And it's the kind of thing that if a, if a, if a coach really balls you out after a game as well or in a couple of training sessions, you know, it's always a little bit of worry of mine. You know, where do you go from here? You know, if, if your backs are against the wall and everything's going badly and you've played, you, you've had a shocker and you're not trying hard enough, um and the, the same result the following week or the week after that. Where do you go? What do you say? What does Penny say in the media next week if the same thing happens? If if Munster again a little bit undercooked, I don't expect him to be. But what? Where do they go to with that? Yeah. You know, Connor and Harlequins are, are going down to Claremont, who who haven't lost in seventy, eighty odd games in Europe, and it's a very difficult place to have a good performance. Even never mind have a win. So. What do you say to the media then afterwards without you know looking a little foolish? 
Yeah, do, like, do players really care an awful lot about, you know, sort of the games that are played in the media, though? I mean, you kind of look at Mourinho in football, and particularly when he was at Chelsea, you know, he would take all of the flack from the, the media, and it would be said then that, oh, well, what he's done is he's taken all the pressure off the players. I mean, does it have that much of an effect on a group of players, or at the end of the day, they're still the ones that have to go down to the field and perform, and so the manager can only take so much pressure off, off players with, with sort of media utterances? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's not quite like with like with rugby and 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 soccer, but I think there's very often occasions where players are thinking they'd like to take a bit of player uh, pressure off the coach, and and you know I think that's that is the case. I, I think the you know the very often when things are going bad, yeah, the pressure ramps up on coaches, but the, uh, on players, but the very often the main focus of of media attention in rugby is is uh, that, that the coach isn't doing their job properly. And that's the issue. And, and we probably saw that last year with Penny. We saw that last year with um, with Declan Kidney. We've seen it in years gone by. You know, even we saw it with, with Joe Smith in the first three games of his reign for um, for Leinster. You know, there was a pressure there. And everybody was saying, well, you know, we better get a win in a couple of performances because yeah. the pressure's heaping up. And if the pressure's heaping up on him, it's heaping up on us as well. But in general, I don't think the media plays as big a role um, in the media thinks in, it does. In, I mean, it's very natural, I suppose. Maybe, yeah, but. in setting the agenda, you know, I, I think you know, I'm on the other side of it now, and, and you know, I, I, we we talk these things, we talk around all these issues, but how much attention the players will be paying to it will be, you know, I'd say, you know, pretty small. I don't think that it will be a huge issue. There might have been, you know, just say in that Harlequins dressing room or in that. Um, Munster dressing room after the game, there might have been a few lads, or you know, in, on on the Monday, a few lads saying, "Did you hear what the coach said?" or you know, "What do you think about that?" But generally, I'd say, you know, rugby players know when they've played well, they know when they've played badly and, and not performed well, and they'll say, "Well, yeah, like he was right in in some context, we didn't play well." Now they mightn't feel they, players don't like to be told that they weren't committed enough. I know that, and I think. I rarely think that's the case with with uh, rugby teams. I think, especially at Heineken Cup level and international level, they're n- normally committed and focused. So no, well, certainly committed enough. Um, I think sometimes that they might, you know, lose their edge in the build up to a game. There might be there might be reasons that they might be a little bit fatigued and the and the uh, mental um, they mightn't be as mentally in tune as they should be. And that's a reason for a below par performance. But I certainly never liked being told that I wasn't uh, I wasn't up for a game. Shane, just on that, um, it's funny because I, I I completely take your point about maybe how much you know the media sometimes things they have more of a, a say, more of a role than they do. But was, Johnny Sexton was talking about um, in his book recently was talking about the. Uh, he was watching the Sky Rugby Club or whatever it was and the players, the, the pundits were all picking their teams for the Lions. This is a good bit in advance, maybe six months in advance and he was everybody's out half. So the next day he said other players and you know fans were saying to him, oh, listen, well done, looks like you know everyone thinks they're going to be in the team. But a couple of, uh, I think it might have been Yian Evans or someone made, made the point, well, I don't think he should be the kicker, you know, it should be Lee Halfbelly taking the kicks. And Sexton was really annoyed about this because he thought, look, Gatlin could be watching that. I don't know, Gatlin, he could be, he could start thinking that way and you know, uh, why is my kicking suddenly an issue? So it seems maybe when it's a very when it's a personal thing about a specific player, they do take quite a lot of notice. Yeah, I, I think they do, and I think I did certainly. And I, I remember, uh, you know, very early in my career, um, a little, you know, the, uh, they were sort of looking at players that might play for Ireland in the future. I must be maybe nineteen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, something like that. And um, you know, uh, a journalist saying, you know, yeah, he was a good prospect. He, you know, he might play for Ireland, but you know, his hands weren't very good. You know, and I was like, 
Oh, you know, why did he say that? You know, that did, you know, then it's going to put it in the mind of the coach that maybe my hands aren't good enough. And and I really, you know, it actually, I really thought about it. So that's a and that's a personal critique, you know. So to bring it back to the the, the coach um, issue and the coach critiquing you uh, in the public, I think that's where it's important to be, you know, to broad and general about the team's performance as opposed to an individual's because. You know, it can it can have an effect on a, on an individual. Listen, behind closed doors, no problem. You know, because yeah. that's what you need. You need that f- feedback, and you demand it. And and very often you'll know it as well. I certainly knew my hands weren't good enough during my career for large parts of it. But um, you don't want it out there in the media because it it uh, it can be a tool for other players, and you, you you do feel that maybe it'll affect you in selection somewhere down the line with other coaches. Yeah, listen, we leave it there, Shane. Great stuff, thank you. Thanks a million. I can't. I actually can't believe what I just heard there, Rod. Did you actually just mention the Johnny Sexton book again? I mean, but there was context. Got, well, yeah, I know there's context, right? But it was a joke. It was, it was a joke. It was a joke last week, last right? Week, yeah. Now it's really we actually need to convene a meeting once this show is over. I think that good news, Murphy. Sit down, all tr- of us, um, yeah. And we should just we should just trash it out. I, I think it's great. You know, I. Um, it's as if Owen has only read one book ever, though. And I mean, that's not the image that we want well, to. No, no, it's a, it, it's it's a thing, you know. If if you do read and if you get into the reading, it's it's quite normal, I think, to for what you say over the next little while to yeah. frequently. But especially refer when to, it's a book, for some reason, there's something about something, I'm old fashioned that way. Something you're like um, parts of books just stick. I'm reading the Eamon Dunphy book now. If that's the good news, it'll oh, be so you'll be boring about material. that for the next yeah. three. I'm months. holding fire until I finish it. You know who you remind me of? Owen is uh, old Aldous Huxley. Uh, Bertrand Russell famously said of him, uh, you could tell by his conversation which volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica he'd been reading. <laughs> One day it'd be Alps, Andes, Appalachians. The next it'd be Himalayas and Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> Coming yeah, up at six really o'clock really tonight. Really <laughs> really <laughs> today Coming up at six o'clock tonight. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, but it's not saying it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them with what you're doing down here, you surely man. The surprisingly eventful reign of Noel King as interim Ireland manager is finally at an end, Ken. Well, we're not sure about that. Yeah. But I mean, John Delaney did say it would be at an end after the two games. Yeah, so. Look, yeah, I mean, we guess we. I mean, we believe what John Delaney says. Don't we believe what John Delaney Take says? Take the man at his word, Ken. Absolutely. It's, it's as good as gold. And uh, for that reason, we're maybe we're expecting a new manager for the, for the friendly in November. Are you ready for manager Mick part two? Yeah, that seems to be the way the wind is blowing there, isn't it? Now, the wind previously blew in the direction of Martin right, O'Neill. The wind stopped blowing that way, though. He sent the wind blowing back in our, in our own direction, I believe. So, uh, this is an idea which seems to have been floated around the place. I saw the RT panel. We're talking about it not as though it was a done deal, but uh, with a certain... Yeah, you know, we can, we, can, uh, we can quite see that happening. If that was to happen now, we'd all be, we'd all be happy. Would we, though? Would we? Ken Early wouldn't. That's what, Would I? Of course I wouldn't be happy. But more of that later. <laughs> <laughs> Time now for US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for 
from my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian Murphy, you, we know you like October, so I presume you're in good form again this week. Yeah, I, not just uh, October for sports, but um, I, I'm going to do my little tourism pitch here and uh, tell all, all the Irish listeners that if they want to come to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, October is just spectacular. We're working on some bl- pr- pristine blue skies, an area cloud in sight, short sleeve weather. Not to rub it in, boys, but I'm feeling good. Walking around with a smile on my face and the uh, and the sunglasses on, guys. You're killing us, Brian. Absolutely <laughs> killing us here. Now, you Murphys ganged up on me last week and told me we weren't allowed to talk about yes. Tony Romo. So I'm going to put my foot down today and say we are talking for at least a few minutes about Tom Brady. Brian, I watched him on last Sunday night um, throwing the ball at his receivers who kept dropping it, but it did not bother Tom Brady the whole place. It was a home game. The entire stadium thought that they'd blown it, wouldn't get the ball back. Got it back. Brady marches upfield and wins them the match. In front of a half-empty stadium. In front of a half-empty stadium. Who were, Most of whom had their back turned as they were walking out the, sta- out the door. Isn't that the key to it all? I mean, we talk about Boston as a great sports city all the time, and yet here they are, the Patriots fans, leaving the park. Uh, come on, you can't leave when you're down four points. But, I mean, this is kind of a bit of the... Uh, uh, so, sort of the complacency that's gotten into the New England fan base now. They expect so many, uh, you know, to, to win every game going away. And if they're losing late, they give up. Plus there's traffic. Plus the Red Sox were playing that night, which I'm sure we're probably going to touch on because that was quite a memorable day in New England. Talk about another great time of year in New England. October is so beautiful there with the fall uh, leaves changing and all the, all the romance and the Robert Frost poems and all that. But you got, uh, you got Tom Brady. Doing it, and we've talked about this on the show, guys, about their problems. Uh, as a re- you know, well, first we exalted them, and then they lost. Remember that we had them built up, yeah. but their problems with the receivers. You know, he, he he's having the same problem, sort of Colin Kaepernick's having in San Francisco, and that is to have that great receiver. Now, thankfully, Kaepernick has Vernon Davis, who's turning into a bit of a, a deep threat for the Forty ers But Brady's got nobody. Uh, ever since he lost Wes Welker to Denver, and then Danny Amendola got hurt, and of course we know what happened to Aaron Hernandez. He's wearing an orange jumpsuit, and we know uh, Rob Gronkowski still isn't back. So he's been doing it with nobody, and he throws it to this kid named Ken Brell Tompkins. No Patriot fan ever would know who he was even two months ago, Ken Brell Tompkins. But for him to outduel Drew Brees... And, and take the, the Saints from the ranks of the undefeated and to do it on a last-second drive with no timeouts to go 70 yards just reaffirms. It's almost like, you know, it's like seeing, you know, uh, one of the great bands of all time play their greatest hits, you know, or like seeing, uh, you know, a great speechmaker just deliver some thundering uh, sermon. You know, the great Tom Brady, all these years later, with no receivers to throw to, doing it in those stakes against that Saints team in that environment, just another chapter in the legend. Plus, he's looking fabulous in his post-game uh, press conferences, guys. I don't know if you've seen this, but no. Giselle and uh, GQ have clearly worked on him. Every outfit he wears now to the podium after his games is getting more and more outrageously fashionable. I'm he's getting a huge kick out of that, too. Some, uh, <laughs> some outrageous woolen number. I can't believe I actually saw, I saw this, but I did. I, 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 is, this, is this the one? There's some woolly jumpers. That's the one, yeah. Last week, 
uh, it, it, I mean, you guys watch Ma- the show Mad Men, you know, the Don Draper in the 1960s. It was this, yeah. this black and gray charcoal-checked blazer with, like, this gray turtleneck sweater and a little kerchief. And I was like, oh, my God, who dresses like this besides Don Draper in 1969? Well, Tom Brady in 2013 is the answer. And then, yeah, this wool thing, guys, what the, it almost looked like a shawl, some sort of, like, lovely shawl that had been knit, knitted for him. So, so that just kind of adds to the humor of it all. But, yeah, great, great, great legendary performance by Tom Brady. I don't know if you guys have heard the radio call. Have you guys heard that? Yeah, we played that earlier on at the intro to our show. Absolutely incredible stuff. Yeah, the uh, unicorn show ponies and where's the beef? I'm sure that's going to be on T-shirts soon. Where's the beef, Brian? <laughs> where is the beef? Is anyone... I thought it was <laughs> what's the beef. Oh, what, yeah, well, what's the beef was... is the phrase, but where's the beef is what this guy came up with. I mean, I don't really understand it. Well, it's back from the eight. You guys remember the old 1980s ads, right? Uh, for Wendy's. Do, do you not remember them? <laughs> <laughs> it slipped from our consciousness yeah, at some point. No. Seriously? You don't, oh, no, so we don't have Wendy's th- over here. We got Okay, no. well, then you're wondering what's going on. I'll fill you in. In the late 1980s, there was a uh, Wendy's is a bur- fast food burger joint in America that was kind of coming on as a challenger to McDonald's and Burger King. And they kind of fancied themselves, they made a bigger burger. They made like a kind of a more robust burger. And their ad campaign preyed on the fact that McDonald's and Burger King kind of, when you took up the bun, the, the, the meat looked pretty, pretty lame and small. So they had this old lady, classic old lady. Gosh, she must be long gone by now because that was the late 80s. And she walked into an unnamed fast food restaurant and ordered a burger and picked up the bun. And she said in great old lady ease, where's the beef? Where's the beef? And it became a legendary ad campaign. In fact, guys, I want to say George Bush, when he was running against Michael Dukakis or Bill Clinton, one of those two, used it as a campaign theme, saying, you know, when I look at my opponent's economic plan, I say, where's the beef? Everybody laughs. So, yeah, you've struck upon a goldmine of old American pop culture from the late 80s, and that's what that guy was referring to on the the radio broadcast. I don't know why he said it at that time, though. I think he was losing his mind a little bit. (laughs) What's the perception of Tom Brady and Giselle? Brian, I only ask you that because it's kind of strange how these golden celebrity couples when it comes to a sports uh, person and their wife or a girlfriend how they're perceived sometimes Alex Ferguson was pretty unhappy when David Beckham took up with uh, Victoria now Beckham Posh Spice and there are a few other ones where it's seen as though that the the, the lady in the life of the sportsman is a bit of a problem this is fairly old fashioned thinking fans nearly hold it against yeah well, against well, well, well Rory McIlroy yeah. this has been mentioned as one of the reasons that he lost focus was that he started you know he, he got a new girlfriend which I never fully really understood the, the logic and there are other issues unfortunately with McIlroy's game at the moment but Howard Giselle and Tom, are they just totally golden are they completely loved it's a great question because um, you're right about um, Rory and, and Wozniacki. That's amazing how we all just leap to that as the automatic reason why he's stinking it up. And, of course, they're in the news lately, too, having to de- deny all these rumors, etc. And then, of course, the Beckham, uh, uh, Victoria, uh, Posh Spice, that's a great analogy, too. And it, and it all goes to contrast. And also, one more, guys, is in the great movie Rocky, probably the greatest sports movie ever made, uh, Burgess Meredith, a.k.a. Mickey, says to The Rock, women weaken legs. Remember that? That's his uh, admonishment to, to stay away from that pet shop dame, Adrian. Uh, but uh, but uh, another testimony to how perfect Tom Brady's life is. Very few, if anybody, slag him for his life with Giselle. In fact, the, kind of the, the, the heavy majority opinion is hats off, respect, 
what a, what an accomplishment. Not only is he a multiple Super Bowl champion, not only is he maybe the best quarterback since Joe Montana, with apologies to Peyton Manning's regular season performances, but he has landed, bedded, and wedded uh, one of the world's greatest supermodels, a Brazilian supermodel of German descent, uh, you know, and it just gets no more exotic than that, right, guys? So, yeah. so he is viewed as a superman. He's viewed as the guy who's, who has it all, and, and frequently it's just kind of exasperated jokes are made by overweight sports writers, pasty sports writers. You know, what else does the guy need? You know, oh, my God, a, a, a last-second touchdown to Drew Brees and Giselle's waiting at home. So uh, it's mostly admiration, um, admiring jealousy, and, um, and applause yeah, for Tom and Giselle. Bill Belichick doesn't seem to have the issues that Alex Ferguson had in, in the case of David Beckham. But we'll move on to the baseball, Brian. I know that that has moved on since Sunday games last night, uh, games on Tuesday night as well. But I do want to take you back, and if we can take our listeners back to Sunday night, Boston, absolutely incredible scenes. Maybe the, the fans of the Patriots were right to leave the game early and find out what was going on at the baseball. Well, you know, there's a lot of people who are, are likening this time to th- th- another golden era in Boston sports, and that was 10 years ago when the Red Sox pulled off the greatest comeback in the history of baseball, down three games to none in a best-of-seven series against the New York Yankees, the greatest franchise in American sports, and their arch-bitter rivals and about to be eliminated. They ripped off four improbable, incredible wins in a row, the only team ever to do that in October to be down 0-3 and do that and beat the Yankees at the same time as Tom Brady and the Patriots were on their way to another Super Bowl. This is now viewed as, you know, almost ten years later, nine years later, as, as it gets no more golden than that in the history of New England. And that, that's for a, a, a sports city that's had Ted Williams playing baseball and Bill Russell and Larry Bird playing basketball. But they've never had it jointly going like that. You throw in a Bruins Stanley Cup in there, too, for the hockey at one point. But so that night... Uh, Sunday night brought everybody back to the golden age of 2004. And what's amazing is, is that both of the principals are still doing it. David Ortiz, a.k.a. Big Poppy, the Dominican slugger who's now 37 years old. Well, at that time he was 28 years old. Was in the, in the October of 2004, guys, one of the greatest clutch-hitting performances in the history of baseball. Time after time after time, he got huge hit after huge hit after huge hit. Cemented his legend. People compared him. I remember uh, the discussion was being kicked around. The great New England sports columnist Bill Simmons said, Is David Ortiz now a more clutch Bostonian than Larry Bird? These are the kind of things we talked about. Well, then, you know, life happens, right? Uh, the Red Sox kind of fall. They win their second World Series in 07. Then they fall into a bit of a rut. And we've discussed this. They actually just bottomed out horribly last year. And David Ortiz gained weight. His, his production dropped off a little bit. And the Red Sox, you know, who knew, who knew what was going to happen to them? Well, guess what? They, they, they come back this year. We've talked about it. They're the number one team in the American League. They're in the playoffs. But it's not going well. They lose game one to Detroit in, in resounding fashion. They almost got no hit, guys, and, and that's a humiliating thing. They only got one hit in the entire game. They lose game one at home, and now in game two, they're going to lose again. And to lose two games at home on Sunday night, you're dead. If you, you cannot lose the first two games at home and expect to win a best-of-seven series in October. So you're looking at the Red Sox dead now, and here's going to be another failed year. But what happened Sunday night? Only hours after Tom Brady threw that touchdown pass in Foxborough to beat the Saints and resurrect memories of his greatest moments, down four runs in the bottom of the eighth with the bases loaded and two outs, 
David Ortiz, all these years later, hits a screaming line drive to right field, and it's not stopping, guys. Over the fence it goes. It gets no more. Like every American kid grows up in their backyard pretending to hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth to win you know, an October baseball game. The only thing different was this was the bottom of the eighth, not the ninth, but it, everything else about it. At home in Fenway, down four runs, bases loaded, Ortiz again, the legend, the Larry Bird, Tom Brady figure, all these years later doing it again. And on top of it all, guys, and I would encourage all the listeners out there, if they haven't done it, to Google the phrase is Tory Hunter and bullpen cop because the right fielder for the De- Detroit Tigers is a very excellent and acrobatic outfielder named Tory Hunter and he dove over the fence to try to catch it he did not catch it but his legs go up in the air that's all you see as he tumbles over the fence and behind him is a 50-year-old Boston policeman who's assigned as security out in the bullpen where the Red Sox pitchers warm up with his arms thrust in the air because Ortiz's ball has cleared the fence and he's clearly a Red Sox fan and he becomes comes as much of the story as Ortiz and Tory Hunter, the Boston cop, because he's thrusting his arms in the air as Tory Hunter's legs are going over the fence for an indelible image that if the Red Sox win the World Series, it's going to be on T-shirts and maybe statues for years down the road. So long story short, an amazing October moment authored by Big Poppy yet again. We tweeted a photo we tweeted that image brian it was absolutely yeah uh, just incredible it's one of the great sports photographs immediately you don't even need context you don't really need anything it just looks absolutely uh, stunning but what struck me about it was and i, I watched at the major league baseball website is really good for um for putting on you know i was just looking for the, the clip uh, to see how that actually played out because i hadn't watched the game live and it's brilliant they show you loads of different angles they show you different coverage from different tv stations and radio stations so you get a real feel for what happened and what struck me was that that guy was being a very, the cop was being a very good, loyal Red Sox fan, but not a very good cop. I mean, all, all the Red Sox players checked to see if your man was okay after smashing his head off the ground. Cop still has his arms in the air, cheering away. You're absolutely right. And in fact, Torrey Hunter himself, who's actually really one of the good guys in baseball and, and handled the devastating moment with, with a lot of humor uh, about it. And he said, uh, he said, hey, man. He goes, listen, I understand you're a Red Sox fan, but help me up. He goes, do your job, man. So he was, he was funny. He says, uh, I can find the exact quote for you, but he says, uh, he's supposed to be protect. He says, he says, help, he's supposed to protect and serve. He said, the son of a gun's got his hands up. Then he says, help me, then cheer, fool. So I thought that was pretty funny. He said it with a laugh. Help me and then cheer, you fool. Uh, so he's supposed to protect and serve. Tory Hunter issuing more classic quotes in the moment. Hunter said that the, the tumble over the fence left him bruised and sore like he was playing a Sunday night football game, he said. Because he's going full speed and hits that wall and tumbles over, which you don't see often in baseball. Yeah. But, yeah, this guy's name, as is the case with the, the media, within guys within six, eight, ten hours – on social media, everybody knew the cop's name, Steve Horgan, out of uh, South Walpole, Massachusetts, that he'd been a Boston cop for like 22 years or something. He even went to the uh, parking lot after the game and posed with the Red Sox owner with his arms raised. And then now, guys, of course, by Monday afternoon, he, it, people were taking the image of this cop with his arms raised and photoshopping it 
in great moments in history. You know, uh, you know, there he is standing next to. Uh, I knew you know, he'd Frank be Irish as well. <laughs> I just it, we even look at we said that. this is a Boston cop. Yeah, well, there's about it's a seventy-five percent chance he's Irish anyway. But he did. There was something very Irish about the way that he was celebrated. Uh, yeah, also, his name is Horgan. So mm. yeah, there you go. Every chance. Brian, last word on this, and that is the, the game on Tuesday night. I know something that maybe I just hadn't been paying proper attention, but I understood that a lot of the Boston Red Sox players have incredible beards. It's just some of the best beards you'll ever see. Not only that, though, they really make use of them. It seems to give them great strength. They'd hit a home run or win the match and celebrate by the bearded men only. I don't know if you have no beard. I don't think you're allowed to be involved in this process. But uh, the bearded guys were tugging on each other's beards in celebration. It was the most macho thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, uh, we're getting into kind of like almost like, um, you know, biblical territory here or we're getting into... Um, old Hasidic Jew territory here. I mean, the beards are almost taking on a religious uh, feel here. They are crazy. I mean, now, we've talked before, I think, about hockey players grow beards uh, in the postseason. Right, playoff beards. There's something different about these Red Sox beards. It must mean that hockey players at some point trim them Either that or Red Sox players have, like, the most active follicles of ever because these beards are so bushy and curly and, and quite frankly, unsightly uh, to see. So, yeah, they are, they're, they're tugging on beards, guys, and you've and you got to have, you know, you know it's, it's, it, we're down into the pit of testosterone here. Mm. Grow your beard out. Tug on it and hit home runs. You know, I mean, this is we're getting into caveman territory here. So it's definitely another one of these things. But it's one of these things that the Red Sox fans and Red Sox players believe is why they maybe are destined to win the World Series this year because they have this sort of camaraderie. And you know, how do you quantify camaraderie? That's been one of the topics lately in October. Is you know, there's this new sabermetrics wave and analytics wave. The Moneyball crew say that everything is a number. It's not a human thing. And, and the Red Sox are saying, no, chemistry and camaraderie do matter. They can lift you up to another level. It's a great sports debate for another day. But the bottom line is they are going with these beards, and they believe this is part. Guys, don't forget, too, kind of on a serious note, that this season started in Boston with the Boston Marathon bombing. And I should say, in kind of wrapping it up here, the David Ortiz home run uh, on Sunday night that sent Fenway into a frenzy and the cop into fame is, was hit by the same guy who grabbed the microphone in April after the bombing and, and famously uttered, this is our blank and city, no filter, dropped the F-bomb live in front of Fenway and on national TV. And that's kind of become the rallying cry. So they have that going. There is something to that. And they still carve the phrase Boston Strong into the outfield every game, uh, which was adopted after the marathon bombing. So there's something going on there. All right, Brian. Brilliant as ever. Thank you. All the best, guys. Oh, yeah, well, we finally got some context for where's the beef, Murph. Yeah, and it needed some context, to be honest, because I just... Well, I always thought it was what's the beef. Not where's the beef. Yeah, but the where's the beef comes from this Wendy's ad. Well, I just explain it to you in great detail. Yeah, I know, I know. But uh, I just, I've misunderstood the pop culture reference that I didn't actually... Have you been to, ever been to a Wendy's? Well, you've been going no. around, you've been going around for the last ten years. Ten years, Ken. Saying, what's the beef? What's the beef? In this way, which is, I suppose it's meant to, it's it's like, um, what's crackulating? Or yeah. something like that, you know? Uh, it's, sort yeah, it's of like what's a, going on. It's like it's a street. It's kind of the street language that I like to use from time to time. Ken, you know, quite urban in that respect. Yeah, um, but actually, all I along it was marking it. you out as a a tisselarst country. <laughs> well, you know, we don't need to go too deeply into it, but you know, it is funny how these by, things by uh, arse, these things happen. I've been tickled by a tissel in a long time. A classic outsider's error. 
That's yeah. what it would be called. Yeah, yeah, I think that. You're, I saw, probably, you're uh, probably right there. You know, you know, John, uh, John Ronson interviewing yeah. Malcolm Gladwell recently pointed out to him that in his new book, you know, he, he apparently mentions the um, uh, Man United song about, you know, it says, uh, build a bonfire, build a bonfire, put the scousers on the top, put the city in the middle, and then burn all mm. of it. Uh, and he said, you actually didn't capitalize city in that, did you? Because you thought the city in it referred to the city of Liverpool, not Manchester City and Gladwell. Ah, well, yes, you know, that kind of thing that can happen from time to time when you sort of jet in and, you know, report yeah, yeah. on a culture that you're not familiar with. You can make a mistake like that. So I suppose it's a... Me and Gladwell. Exactly. Is Malcolm Together Gladwell, again. Is it just me or is Malcolm Gladwell getting hammered a bit this year? He really is. Yeah, the sports gene. David Epstein saying, Gladwell, to say he simplified the 10,000 hour rule, well, it's not even a rule. Claimed. We're not going to go back over to sports union again. <laughs> we'll talk about that even more than the Sexton book. But it seems to me that poor old Gladwell is, is just taking it from everywhere. It may be the case, Owen, that if you make a great deal of money and become uh, very successful, some people are going to have a problem with it. That's the end of the show. But we have got Second Captain's Football coming up a little bit later on. Do check us out on Twitter. I'm looking forward to it already. Facebook. Ken seems to be in the zone today. So I, I feel that Second Captain's Football is going to be. A real burn burn. Our email address, Murph? Uh, it's uh, secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Yeah, and we want P. Bezos. Loads of P. Bezos in for next week. Murph's yes. going to give you a bumper P. Bezos edition. Yes. Yeah? Yes. Sounds good. All right, thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 